You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And so uh, today we are going to tackle something where we are going to just kind of make things up. (laughs) (laughs) Which is to say that one of the things we pitched when we were doing this episode, I think even the very first episode, was we want to try and ask questions that are just sort of like, why is this happening, you know? Why do we do what we do? Yeah, that's right. And so one of the things I was thinking of was just... And I, this actually occurred to me because someone came up and asked me this. And one of my classes is, my kid is just a nightmare at restaurants. What is going on? How do I deal with this? Why are they doing this? And so um, just thinking generally about what are the kind of questions someone might have about this confounding behavior that they might see in their kids or their pets or their significant other or even in themselves. The purpose of this is actually sort of to take on why does, why does any problem happen? that seems like it's hard to understand. Cool. So it's kind of a basis of that. Yeah. And so although we are specifically going to talk about a kid behaving badly in a restaurant, we're also going to generally talk about some of the hypotheses about why certain behaviors occur that are generally in the category of problematic. Or why we do what we do. That's right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's go ahead and kick this off by um, just talking about why we can even talk about the subject from a psychological standpoint. It seems like, you know, it wouldn't really apply to talk about how kids behaving in a restaurant and other problem behavior. And how could we even just sit here and try and think of a reason that this could occur? And even when that student had approached me and asked about why is my kid acting this way in restaurants, I really just kind of had to say, I I, I don't know. It could could be a lot of things and I would have to actually, you know, learn more about this situation before I could just tell you, it's sort of like, you know, why is my kid crazy? Um, What's wrong with them? I couldn't just say like, Oh, this is what the diagnosis is. You know, you have to do testing and that sort of thing. But that being said, if we look at behavior and psychology, we can actually um, really derive some general principles that help explain how behavior sort of works and um, how psychology sort of works and that sort of thing. And I like to give this analogy of like gravity and that if you have a comprehensive theory of gravity, I don't need a gravity for planet Earth and then a different type of theory altogether for the gravity on Mars and then a different type of theory altogether for gravity on the sun. The whole theory of gravity, if it works and it can be applied, is relatively simple, has math behind it, and we can look at any body in the universe and we can um, say, okay, if we understand its mass, if we understand its um, orbit and all this stuff, if we we can look at those things, then we can understand how gravity is going to work there. And we don't even have to necessarily be there and we'll be accurate because this theory of gravity is consistent and it's universal. And it doesn't change just because you're on a place that has a different mass or that sort of thing. Um, Now, the experience of gravity will change, but the principles of gravity will not change. Yeah. So that's why when you're at like the Discovery Museum, you can stand on the scale and it can accurately tell you how much you'd weigh it on the different planets, right? Exactly right. Yes. Yeah. And so, and we're not on those. So they say. Right. We're not on those planets to actually test it, but we can look at it in terms of if we understand how mass works, we understand how gravity is related to mass and all these things, then um, we can apply that principle and we can understand things even though we haven't necessarily experienced them directly. And the same is true we have generally found for 
psychology and pretty much anything in the universe is that when we understand, we can describe the principles behind how things work and we can use those principles to then create hypotheses for how things might work in a certain circumstance. And then we can test those hypotheses. We can use our data that we have gathered to then create the theories behind how things work. And we can uh, use more data to support those theories. And then when we find where they start to break down, then we refine those theories and we have new understanding of those events. And so that's why I think this is a fun um, opportunity to sort of uh, bring all of that into this just idea of specifically honing in on why are my kids acting like a nightmare at the restaurant? Yeah. And with that said, like I kind of Google around just to look at like what is being said in general right. about this situation. So I literally typed that question in. Oh yeah. And this is crazy. <laughs> I added, yeah, I added the qualifier. Um, I did a few, but the psych today one is I'm taking. So I add that qualifier into my search criteria just cause it's a News source that writes a lot of these sort of things from varied perspectives, which I like. So the qualifier of psych, psych today, psych today okay. with the question. Yeah. Okay. And here's some of the different titles and things that are kind of being talked about. So why our kids are out of control, which I'm just going to get into a little bit later um, on that one. There was another one called Get Your Children Under Control in Public. So it was kind of tips to prevent and handle the meltdowns. Don't Shame Children in Pursuit of Discipline was another title. So it kind of walks the line of discipline versus punishment. It's not really for this episode, sure. um, but it highlights the impacts of punishment um, and what it can actually do um, short term, long term. And then I guess it kind of highlights that, but there's a lot that goes into that is what it's going to Another title was Not Naughty, 10 Ways... Uh, kids appear to be acting bad but aren't so he's giving examples of uh, things like biological needs or quote hangryness <laughs> yep. um, and learning to express emotions and these other things that might be occurring when children are acting up which i think is totally valid possibilities sure and then there's two more first was what your children wishes you knew when he acts out so they were kind of looking at this angle of uh quote fulfilling emotional needs which was a little more on the fringe of what i like to um use as it, it a good explanation is why things are happening, um, but it's definitely a real um, probably phenomenon that's happening there and like some learning or teaching needs to go on um, or caring. And then the last one is how we can stay cool when your kids act up. And this was um, an approach at mindfulness and kind of commitment strategies um, somewhat and kind of giving those to the parents. So out of this... Uh, now, were there a, more than this or was this the entire list? No, this was just like the top six hits or eight year hits on my Google Oh man, that pulled up. Yeah. And so, and People have a lot to say, a lot of varied perspectives in psychology. Yeah. There's, I mean, different disciplines across almost every single one of those are specialties and the people who wrote them. And my point here is that there is a lot that goes into this, just like we're taking this principal approach. We're going to kind of look at it in detail from that perspective. Um, this is multifaceted. There's so many angles to take on this. Yeah. And again, it comes to this, we don't, we need to know more in order to sort of, uh, describe what's yeah. going on in order to say what might be the cause and all that. I'll get into it, but we do know that there's very big differences across cultures with this. Ooh, I like that. Yes. That's great. Okay. Um, so I guess it is worth pointing out in light of that, that we're coming at this from the perspective of, you know, a American culture specifically sort of on the West coast of America and that we have our dinner time ritual, um, is, kind of varied from family to family and by yeah. kind of i mean it's like you really have Dreamy. no idea yeah, yeah if you you walk in anyone's house it's not going to be the same as the last house you're in or even your own house um pretty much every family has their own rituals around how they do dinner you just start your lifetime too i sat down at a dinner table for like the first 15 years of my life i haven't sat down at the dinner table consistently for years yeah yeah no it's i weird. once i moved out of my 
parents' house, it was very different in the way that I handled meals and had a lot to do with a coffee table and <laughs> being on the go. Handled, um, handled meals. Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, there are specifically some general hypotheses uh, regarding why someone has some kind of problematic behavior that they're engaging in or that they're demonstrating. And there's five, well, there's, okay, there's basically four general hypotheses and then there's kind of five total and I'll get into that fifth one and why it's not its own thing. And so the, uh, the five, uh, or the four specifically are, uh, there could be psychoanalytic or psychodynamic reasons. You could also call these cognitive reasons. Although the way this hypothesis is stated is really rooted entirely inside of the psychoanalytic tradition. Another one is, uh, that there's a self-stimulatory reason. That is that it's just, they're doing it because they enjoy it. Um, a third reason is that there's some genetic, uh, reason that they're doing this or biological reason. So it has to do with their brain, their genes, something going on chemically, something like that. And then the last major hypothesis is that this is learned behavior that has some kind of reinforcement or some kind of consequence that has uh, caused this behavior to occur. And then the fifth one that I mentioned and why it's not really its own thing is that maybe it's a combination of those things. You know, a lot of people, when they don't really know, they like to settle on a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And we'll talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages of these as we go through. Okay. So starting with, as I mentioned, the psychoanalytic reason. Um, and again, we're speculating wildly. I didn't ask a psychoanalyst what they would say about this, but having read some of the accounts and I actually did look up what, uh, some uh, psychoanalysts have said about things like this Okay, is things like they're reacting to, uh, subconscious anger toward authority figures due to frustration from not being breastfed enough Whoa. or from being breastfed too much. Oh, oh, <laughs> right. Both sides. <laughs> there you go. Um, also, um, it could be that they are jealous. So let's say that they're a child with a mother and father, uh, they're jealous toward their father because they desire to replace him. And so that they can sleep with their mother and what they're doing in these circumstances is they're acting out to undermine the authority of their father so that they can uh, have control of the situation and appear then more appealing to their mother. Um, so that's kind of intense. Um, or that they might have an association with restaurants and, uh, for some reason, the trauma of first learning how to, uh, control their bowels and like maybe having a poopy diaper in a restaurant or something might be a traumatizing event. Maybe it's to satisfy the ego. Yeah. Reduce guilt. Something right. like that. Exactly. So they're, they're working toward their, or they're being controlled by their id, their ego and their super ego. Okay. That's a lot of stuff. Um, maybe you heard something in there that resonated with you. Uh, maybe not. I didn't, but, uh, let's just go through some of this. Okay. One thing that's important to notice is that it's very possible as you listen to this, that every single one of those explanations, while they were completely different from one another, they might have had or created a feeling that it could be a legitimate explanation. It, it's plausible. You yeah. Know? It might work that way. Uh, and this kind of feeling this sense of things being legitimate is actually very common for humans in general. Um, we are really good at hearing things and kind of making sense of it, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense sort of scientifically, I guess. And that is we can, we can apply explanations even when they don't have any basis in fact or reality whatsoever. And you see this with all kinds of superstitions and uh, the history of people's beliefs over time and the things that they have believed in that maybe they don't anymore. Um, that, you know, if you can, if you can say something about it and that statement can sound coherent, then that can be enough to 
um, have people believe it. Um, but just because it makes a coherent sense doesn't mean that it's accurate or even like real. You know what yeah. I mean? Reminds me of that idea that if things uh, happen right after each other, they cause things. Right. Also, yeah. Right. Yeah. So they have similar. a sequence of events. Yep. One must have caused the other. Absolutely. Yeah. That that idea, even though they can be completely unrelated. All right. A second, I think, consideration around the psychoanalytic hypothesis is that it's, and this is actually to come up for every one of these, I think, but it's so easy after something has happened to uh, be able to sort of apply a cause to it because, you know, hindsight is, is twenty twenty. Always. Yeah. And so you can offer some kind of cause after it happened, this, this, what they call post hoc, which is to say after the fact, um, this explanation, but then this comes back to this idea that the only evidence for that cause is the fact that the problem behavior occurred, which reminds you of circular reasoning. Boom. Shout out to another episode. See, and that's why I wanted to do that episode early. It's because I knew this would come up multiple times. Episode three. All right. And so how could you even test that being breastfed too much or too little and what constitutes too much or too little? Well, and then there's also the consideration of maybe some babies actually need more breastfeeding than others. So the average doesn't actually apply to them. So you'd have to do it on a case by case basis. So what looks like too much for one wouldn't actually be too much, but even be not enough. And how, like, how would you know, how could you test that that leads to frustration with authority that this is, you know, we're talking about some of these kids may not know what any of those words means, frustration or authority. Maybe they're old enough that they do, but even then do they understand the implication of the question as it's asked and how could you otherwise tell? And specifically, I said when the explanation was that this was subconscious, if they don't even know that's the reason, how could you possibly get at something that's subconscious to ask them this, right? And I'm asking these questions with the, you know, knowing that people who are listening to this can't actually tell me their answer. So I'm just going to tell you, you can't. Like, there's no way that you can objectively measure something that is a subconscious frustration with authority. There's no way. Like, yeah. you, you, there's no way to do it. Um, now, what you could do. I'm just thinking about, you know, sort of trying to play the devil's advocate to my own argument here is, you know, I guess you could take kids and measure how often they're breastfed and maybe even get like a medical opinion about what is the right amount for that kid. And then you could compare their behavior in restaurants um, for that kid to other kids who maybe had too much or too little breastfeeding based on that medical professional's opinion. But then that also raises the question of the, the fact that they're in the restaurant doesn't rule out how they've been parented up to that point. Like yeah. how were they, how, what were the child rearing practices of that Very household? True. What is the culture like for that particular family or the, where they're growing up? Um, are there religious rules that they're behaving with respect to? And what kind of behavior management strategies does that family use in general? Yeah, we've talked, we've talked a lot about how your history and all these other variables around you like totally influence your behavior all the time and why you do what yeah. we do. And, and we'll have, and that'll actually come up in some of these other hypotheses. Yeah, there's an immense number of opportunities for, for influence. Yeah, and, and that actually leads me to another um, potential conundrum with this is based on this hypothesis that this is a subconscious frustration with authority, well, there's not much you can do about a subconscious frustration with authority in terms of influencing it in a way that you can know that you influenced it. Yeah. So if this can change and we're relatively confident that we can change that kind of behavior, then that means that it couldn't at least be entirely a subconscious frustration with authority. It has to be also based on something else because you could also say, if you're coming from this psychoanalytic approach and you maybe make the argument that that is the prime cause is that they're having this uh, subconscious frustration with authority or they're breastfed too much or they're, they're poop something and they want to sleep with their mother. I don't know. Any one of those things. Um, if you can argue that you should then use therapy to help this child, let's say they're old enough that that would be useful for them. 
um, then couldn't you also make the argument that something along the way that was similar to the therapy but in the opposite direction may have sparked this to happen in the first place, meaning that it wasn't necessarily a subconscious frustration with authority or wanting to sleep with their mother, but maybe some other language-related cause. And so that that would then have been the cause, which means that that wouldn't have been an accurate diagnosis. Or, you know, maybe something else may have um, done it and maybe... Um, I get this whole problem from authority or from breastfeeding or whatever. This is, you know, we're speculating here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of speculating, a lot of speculating. So, but that, that is a hypothesis out there. Um, all this applies to those, all those, uh, answers that I gave, but I don't know. You have anything else to think about this one? I think I'm good. We can jump into the next one. All right. I guess just to say, I said a lot of cons on this, I guess one pro, um, yeah, you were pretty harsh. Yeah. I guess one potential reason that this is sort of positive is, or one positive element that could exist here is that in this psychoanalytic approach, if you're talking about that, even if it came from breastfeeding or their experiences with the restaurant or their attitude toward their mother, these at least speak to the fact that there are experiences of some kind that occurred. And so this tells you that this is at least prescriptive in that you look to what kind of experiences may have preceded this Okay. that were then the cause. And so at least that, you know, even though we can't measure their subconscious and we can't measure their desire toward their father in any objective way, um, what we can do is we can at least see like what other events were there. And so there is, it's looking at, um, not just that there's something in their mind that's wrong with them and we don't know how it got there. There's something that happened then we might know how it got there. And that okay. at least is a little prescriptive and maybe in how to research it. Awesome. So our next bigger areas, uh, that we were talking about are influencers self stimulatory. Yeah. And so, so the, with this one, I like to just give some. On this. Okay, I like to give some examples of like right now. I'm shaking my leg while we record this podcast. Yeah, I do that all the time. That could be self-stimulatory, right? Totally. Or some other things. I like to crack my knuckles, which I usually have to edit out of the podcast. Yeah, we have to do that. I actually did that on the last episode we just recorded. Yeah. Um. What else? I do sometimes like uh, kind of like running my thumb across my other fingertips. Oh yeah. Um, tapping a lot. You yeah, tap all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Abraham used to drum. Yeah. He still drums on everything that's around him. Um, true. What else is there? Sometimes I'll do this thing where like I'll touch my nose when it gets all dry and I'll do yeah. it like crazy. We talked about that in the, I think the habit reversal episode. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, so so well, there's a lot of different and there's a lot of different forms was the point is they have a lot of different forms. We, yeah, we did dive into that in another episode. Um, one element I think that's important is that just about everything we do has some kind of tactile or sensory feedback and that that in and of itself can be looked at as sort of self-stimulatory. Yes. I mean, just about everything that we do has that. Oh my gosh. Fidget spinners. Yeah. Fidget spinners. Scratching an itch. I'm pretty sure you were trying to avoid that, but I had to bring it up again just in uh, case it's still a thing. Not necessarily. I wonder, um, I feel like the days are numbered on those things in terms of their popularity. I could be wrong though. I'm I'm gonna I'm actually just gonna call it. I'm gonna say that a year from, from a year from now, even at the time of this recording or at the time of this release, one of those two things. So maybe a year, year and a half. I do not know what department store was, but it's a big department store mm -hmm. that I saw just yesterday or two days ago in a tech headline that they now have an entire like fidget department coming out. <whistles> so I'm gonna go on the other, and that this thing stick around for like 
10, 20 years. Nope. Okay. <laughs> I say, I say a year from now, this will be like almost gone. Okay. It's or like it'll Furbies. be like, like Furbies around and then they just disappear. This is going the way of the Furby. Okay. Or those like digipets. Do you remember those things? <laughs> yeah. It's like on a keychain. I love how far we get off. I hope listeners r- relate to those things. Though. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, okay. So back old. in self stimulatory. So there's a couple different ways you said, um, one big thing is that, uh, that people talk about in this is that children may be overstimulated mm-hmm. and they're acting out because they need more sort of calming activities. Right? Yes. They just need to like relax, uh, chill out, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard this a ton in education, mm-hmm. especially. Um, and then so first overstimulated is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Um, and I don't think I've seen a common agreement as to what it necessarily means. No, no one seems to have, even when you look at the the research on this, no one has a really solid, like, this is what we mean when we say overstimulated. I guess it does, and like you noted here, like it does refer to how many of the senses potentially are being stimulated simultaneously. Like that's something like where people kind of genuinely agree on that continuum. I think. Sure. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about that is that thinking about the fact that a lot of this might refer to having a lot of those senses engaged. If you think about something like one of the most stimulating activities you can do is actually play video games. Ooh, virtual reality. Yeah, virtual reality. Yeah. Um, Going on a roller coaster. Virtual reality while you're on a roller coaster. Nailed it. It's like Um, Universal Studios in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, if you're playing video games or any of those things, then you have visual stimuli. They are almost always accompanied with some kind of auditory stimuli. So like you have earbuds or... You know, it's coming through speakers or something. Yeah. They, especially for the VR and the roller coaster, they have sort of tactile things where you can feel them. Uh, with the roller coaster, you have the added vestibular stimulation. So your sense of like direction, what, what, where your body's facing. Yeah. And a little bit of like the kinesthetics of where you, where your arms are and where you're placing them and all that sort of thing. And so that's a lot of stuff to take in. But in those circumstances, uh, we're not seeing the same types of behavior of like crazy out of your chair, not listening sort of stuff as we're talking about with like this kid being a nightmare in a restaurant. And I guess we didn't even say what nightmare in a restaurant even really means. Um, but let's just assume that yeah. we all sort of agree that they're behaving in such a way that parents are irritated and want them to leave just in general. Um, but anyway, so, so yeah, this, this stimulation refers to how, how many of your senses are being used, right? We yeah. have this, you have this note here, spoiler alert. <laughs> That's basically all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, we go through our day. We, we are using uh, our we our brain is using all of our senses to coordinate our interaction with the world around us. And that's that's how we that's how we live. That's how we behave. Now, of course, there are people who have those impaired and would not trying to take away from that. People who have visual impairments, auditory impairments, what you know, what have you. They are still going to have everything else is going to be engaged. Yes. And allowing them to to work. And so, you know why aren't those things also overstimulating? And I guess what we're going, the direction we're taking this in is that overstimulated doesn't seem to mean a whole lot. Like we don't know how it occurs or when it occurs or why it would even lead to this type of behavior um, or you know whether or not this is a, a relevant variable to consider in terms of how we understand behavior in general. So, and then I guess the other part of this is how would you know, like, Uh-oh. <laughs> we got to be cautious on assigning causality here. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, and this so goes Abraham, back- I know that they're acting out because they're overstimulated. Well, how do you know they're overstimulated? Because they're acting out. Why are they acting out? Because they're overstimulated. And round and round. I just want to put like an echo on that. And just let it go. Whoop, whoop, whoop. 
<laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So again, this comes back to, it's a post-talk analysis. It's e easy to try and assign a cause after the thing takes place. And then you get, you go back to this circular reasoning. So, um, it's just a label for the behavior to say it's overstimulated, but okay, let's take it the other direction. Maybe they're understimulated and they need to be stimulated. And so there's not enough going on. But again, we come to this problem of how do you know, and I'm going to end up with circular reasoning again, but there maybe are some things we can look at. Let's say that we give them something that is stimulating to do. All right. So I feel like we hit this pretty hard from the uh, like logic side, right? Circular reasoning. But let's bring in another example. Um, say one thing that I found in the education realm a lot, working with kids with autism was uh, sometimes people would say, oh, he's overstimulated. We need to use the weighted vest. Mm -hmm. And it was approved treatment at the place we were working out to put this weighted vest on the child. And so that is what it sounds like. It's like a piece of clothing that has, I want to say it's like metal bars sewn into it or something like that. Some, or yeah. sand maybe. Something that makes it pretty heavy and weighty so that they, they put it on this kid and I think they have like little like straps. That Velcro, sort of Velcro straps. That can yeah, be Velcro like straps. Off. Yeah, that, that yeah. sort of keep it on them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's intended to be able to take it off by the kid uh, in practice. Sometimes it's prescribed for 10, 15 minutes, those sort of things. There's very varied practices. Um, but people would be like, hey, look, it worked. He's not as stimulated anymore. A, we didn't have a lot of measures around that or any usually mm -hmm. before or after to be able to make that sort of judgment. B, sometimes you actually did increase the child's weight by like 20 to 50%. Sure. Um, which, yeah, I would expect a difference in their behavior if you just like, I mean, I'm 180 pounds. If you throw 90 pounds on my back, like I behave very differently. Sure. Than, than before I had that on myself. So although we were hidden from this theoretic or like logic angle on the circular reasoning for these sort of things, yeah. um, I just want to say like working in the classroom, we did put some measures around that. And I've seen other research as well that were debunking these sort of things on that individual level. So the science does not support the idea that cre um, it, approaching the overstimulation angle by reducing stimulation actually changes behavior in a way that's not attributable to something other than the fact that you are physically restricting their movements. Yes, and I will say, like, um, there isn't an extreme amount of literature on this. Um, right. But it, damn, it yeah. was convincing. No, yeah, it's the what exists is, is good stuff. So, um, so now yeah. the, the other side of this was going at the um, maybe it's not that they're overstimulated, but they're understimulated. I've also seen that argument. And so it's like they're there, they're sitting at this table and we just need to give them something to do. But then the question that I had is whether you're addressing their level of stimulation or just giving, you're just distracting them. You know, they now have something to focus their attention on. Um, I don't know. It's just, it, it seems like this has the, the problem of, it doesn't necessarily solve the, the other problem of being under, uh, overstimulated either. It's just, it goes in the other direction and it's, doesn't tell you much about what the actual cause is. Yeah. And another one inside of this whole like um, self-stimulatory reason is that it's just doing it in and of itself is fun. So, um, you know, it's just that kids just do this because that's just kids that they have fun with it. And that um, the act of acting out in this way is its own sort of, um, I guess, stimulatory experience and reward, if you will, for them. Okay. And so, um, now you could actually test this and I think people have, and in some cases it is the case that it, in the absence of all other things that you can see that they will continue to do whatever this problem behavior might be. Um, and that, that then says that it probably is that they're getting whatever, whatever the experience they're having, it is the fun. 
It's the fact that they're enjoying that experience and that's why it persists. Right. But, you know, looking at that, you still have other variables to consider. And I think, you know, some of the research has has considered these variables. Um, But when you have a kid who has is either sleep deprived, is maybe being antagonized by their other siblings, um, it depends sort of on what their level of nutrition is. If they have really poor nutrition, they might be a little bit more temperamental. Um, And then if there's motivation to do something else uh, that's, that's there, and we'll go into some of those other examples later. So this one, there, there might be a, a better way to sort of measure and understand it from the psychoanalytic perspective of just sort of, you know, all these unconscious things that we can't really get to. Yeah. We could actually sort of measure the level of stimulation. Of course, it's hard to say what, what their level of stimulation is necessarily, but we can at least control what we provide in terms of stimulation. Um, we just have to be very careful about that whole post hoc analysis problem and circular reasoning and also ruling out those other variables that might be contributing to understanding it in terms of it being self-stimulatory in nature. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's talk about some uh, another one. What was our third one? Genetics. Oh, okay. So it's some sort of gene or neurological variant has got to be the source um, of this behavioral change, right? Sure. And I think we uh, we covered this recently in an episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, what we landed on from that description was that although genes and neurology are critical for under, for being able to describe the elements of or describing like how behaviors take place at one level of analysis, it is only part of the description yes, and that exactly. there are other variables. And so, yes, I just want to say, yes, genes are involved in this. Yes, your brain is involved in this and they're part of the story. And um, what is important to understand is there is no tantruming at a restaurant gene. It doesn't exist. What you will have is a sequence of genes that might maybe mean you have someone who's more likely to just be at like an elevated I guess pace or they're just, they're, they're moving a lot, you know? Yeah. And the, the, how active they are is going to be something that we can more readily attribute to um, some of their genes than the very specific context of a restaurant or the very specific behaviors that are associated with being a little turd in a restaurant. I think I can say turd. Yeah. Well, we do our own censoring, so I'll say whatever yeah. I want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there is another uh, major advantage of this one in that you can directly measure whether or not there are genetic and neurological correlations that uh, that exist with this type of behavior. And at least you have that. Now, of course, if you look at the brain of someone who is doing something, their brain is going to look like someone who is doing the thing that they're doing at that time. Yeah. And so if someone's having a tantrum, their brain is going to look like someone who's having a tantrum. And if they're not having a tantrum, their brain is going to look like someone who is not having a tantrum. So it will be descriptive, um, but it will not necessarily tell you what started it or what's going to end it. Or yeah. tell you what kind of intervention you can take. So, so this, this genetic model also brings in um, like the medical model of treatment, right? Right, totally. So this should be something to be treatable by meds, right? Yeah. So it this comes to this logical problem again of if this problem is in fact genetic in nature, then this is something you should be able to treat by going after the genes. Gene therapy, maybe gene therapy is what we need and that will reduce this kind of behavior. And I don't think anyone has had kids who are problematic in restaurant and then went to, you know, a geneticist and said, you need to just change my kids genes yeah. because not they're to, a handful. Yeah. Not to mention just like culturally, right? Like sure. there's such a swing that we get into a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so those sort of things, cultural or behavioral interventions or therapy, like shouldn't have an effect if we were to believe this model of just pure genetic hypothesis. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if this is genetic, then the culture and shouldn't matter the, you know, the, parent strategies and behavior management stuff shouldn't matter because we're talking about like, this is just part of their makeup. Like yeah. that's just who this kid is, but it, those things do matter. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So 
This one's important because this one is at least plausibly and will will 100% be involved in understanding the problem behavior. Um, and we'll come, I'll come back to that at the end of this. Okay. Um, but yes, the, the genetic hypothesis, it, it doesn't necessarily explain behavior again. It gives you a, uh, another level of description. And again, this one has the major advantage of being one of the most objective. And it's definitely the most objective we've talked about so far. Yeah. Because we can really measure this well. Um, so let's go into our final hypothesis before yeah. we do our combined hypothesis. So our first was to recap psycho- psychoanalytic reasons. Yep. Second was self-stimulatory reasons. Third one is genetic hypothesis of some sort of genetic approach towards it. And our fourth and final one is the learned. final. <laughs> yeah. But the fourth that's very different is this learned hypothesis. Right. And so what that suggests is that this child learned their behavior some way. Maybe they learned it from a friend. Maybe they saw their parents act this way or a sibling act this way. Um, it could also be that when they have acted out in the past, some of the same problem behavior that's helped them get out of stuff they didn't like. They get rid of this uh, unpleasant circumstances. Maybe this was something that was even encouraged in certain circumstances. And then this kid sort of just generalized that same behavior where it would be appropriate to a situation where, where it wasn't. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, I know how to do this thing. Um, this is, you know, throwing things and running and that's great for baseball, but yeah. not so great for being at dinner. I think a lot of people generally believe that this plays some sort of role in life, right? Like yeah. things are learned or picked up from others. There's some sort of social component, etc. Yeah. And this, um, this also speaks to that whole um, parenting strategies, behavior management strategies, what kind of stuff is already um, existing um, that we know can be a variable. And this doesn't rule out necessarily the other hypotheses, which I'll get to in a second. But this one, I also just want to always take that critical view of how could you know that this was learned? Um, And I think one potential answer to that is that we can actually see it happen. We can see someone who is behaving badly and then see if that kid will imitate that behavior. Yeah, we could add or remove variables too, right? Yeah. Whether or not we encourage them afterwards. Yeah, totally. Um, You know, sometimes uh, what might be the case, and I've heard people make this argument, is like they're just doing it to get attention. I'm like, okay, well, let's withhold attention and see if it stops. Mm -hmm. Or let's only give them attention when they do something and see if that um, works to have them do more of that. You know, and that's the whole idea of reinforcement is that as we apply this thing to them systematically, it, if it's a relevant variable, we should see their behavior change in accordance with the presence or absence of that variable. And so again, that helps us be objective about it. Um, it's, you know, it's difficult because it's very contextual and that it might only happen in a certain time. It might not happen in others. Um, but at least it gives us something where we can really look at uh, what's going on. And there's that argument of, well, you can look at what happened now and then say, oh, they must have learned that. And how do you know? Because they're doing it. Well, why are they doing it? Because they learned yeah. it. Circular reasoning again. But at least this one, we have those things that we can really apply. The we're gonna change it. See if it. See, we're gonna change something about their circumstance. See if that changes how much they do it. Let's put them in another context. Because if this is learned, they should do it over here too, right? Same thing for genetics. Honestly, is that like it should transfer across those contexts? Agreed. Um, or we could say like if it's just this context, then we should see that it only happens here and not somewhere else. So there's something about that restaurant setting that's going on, and um, so this one, uh, the learned hypothesis tells us that, you know, look at these variables like parenting strategies, like their setting events, um, and then like whether or not it's encouraged, that sort of stuff. Um, and that at least I think leans more toward what can we do about it? And also what really is going on that has making this continue to happen. And so our final one was, you know, someone might be listening to this and just say like, well, maybe it's not one of those things. Maybe it's all of them, right? Yep. 
It's E, all of the above. Exactly. Now, of course, the major advantage is this covers all your bases. Yeah, it's a very safe answer. Right. It's, That's you know, for sure. If we don't know, then maybe it's just a little bit of everything. And the one problem with this, coming from it from a logical angle, and there's other angles to take as well, is that if you just say, well, maybe it's just all of those things. Okay, so you're just kind of, you know, it's a catch-all. We'll cherry pick of whatever sort of works for this particular circumstance. We're just going to go through and pick the hypotheses that, that work for us and say, these are the ones that work this time. And this kind of flies in the face of that universal principles we talked about at the very beginning of this, right? Of just okay. sort of, we're just going to cherry pick the, the answers this time and just whichever one fits our circumstance now, that's the one we're going to go with. Whereas it's sort of like, if we have a good understanding of the principles of psychology, well, then those should work no matter what we should be able to sort of apply those to all these circumstances and see and you know many if not most look at the child rearing process as we mentioned earlier um, as being at least a relevant variable so we know we're, we're very confident that that one's in there somewhere okay and yeah sure it could be a combination of one of those things we know that your genes and neurology are involved somehow um, but it's also like if one of these things is sufficient to explain it then adding on all these extra layers is just this conceptual baggage. It's just, it requires a lot more assumptions that you have to make. It requires a lot more testing that you have to do. And maybe it's, maybe it's important. Maybe those are all things that do need to be tackled from every angle. Um, and I think that it's safe to say we do need to understand this in terms of describing what's going on at the genetic and biological level. Those are variables that are, we, we know are relevant. Like we're dealing with, a, with an organism here. It's alive. Yeah. So those are part of it. And another, going at this again, that that logical route, one of the problems with just saying it's a combination of all those things, this is called the, the middle of the road logical <laughs> fallacy, where it's sort of like, um, if, if you were to say, and just to demonstrate how absurd this logical fallacy can be, yeah. if you're like, we should kill a hundred kids, and I'm going to say we should kill zero kids, then the logical, the middle of the road is we should just kill 50 kids. No, zero. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, um, Obviously, like we should just be on zero. Like the middle, just because it's halfway between two answers doesn't mean it's your best answer. That now it can be the case that sometimes the halfway between two answers is the best answer, but just being halfway between doesn't make it the right answer. Yes, it's an informal logical fallacy. Um, and so that's the same thing here is like just saying like, you know, it's a little bit of everything doesn't necessarily make it a right answer. There are some of these that are more relevant than others, and maybe some of these are more relevant than others, depending on the context and the circumstance and the kid and all that sort of stuff. So the, we're kind of back to this question of why um, our kids are out of control. Yep. That's what we're trying to kind of hit here. Now, I found um, it was an interesting article by, uh, on Psychology Today, and I'd referenced this earlier, but they, they had some interesting, sometimes slightly kind of like out there, not out there bad, but just like kind of in your face statements. Sure. But I want to kind of pull through these, all right, okay. since we just covered those five areas. I like it. So, so they proposed the question of why are there so many out of control children today? And they said there's a lot of different explanations that are proposed from high sugar diets, environmental toxins, allergens, television, um, psychiatric disorders and, and considering all these theories that it's they propose uh, and there is data showing that it's largely this American phenomenon that happens. So this is very cultural is what they're saying. Yeah. So there's a couple of different psychologists um, that were writing this article. Jacob Azarad. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And then Paul Chance, which is interesting. I actually know him um, from the field that I kind of studied in. Right. Cool. 
That's great. And they wrote this September 1st, 2001, but they reviewed it most recently July 9th, 2016. So clearly they still stand behind these sort of things. Yeah. Um, at least as of a year ago. And one thing that I thought that was really interesting to note is that there was a psychologist, Tiffany Field, of the University of Miami School of Medicine that found in France, three-year-olds behave admirably in restaurants, apparently. Um, they sit quiet uh, and talk and eat their meals like, quote, little adults. They do not argue with their food or refuse to eat as many American children do. This makes me think that this is in support of the genetic hypothesis that yeah. there's a French gene that is being polite in restaurants. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, and when interesting kind of continues. So in a separate study, Field noted that there are uh, another major difference in the behavior of French American preschoolers was that like uh, when observing on playgrounds, French youngsters were aggressive towards their playma- playmates only 1% of the time, whereas Americans were up to 29% of the time. That's hmm. insane. Yeah, interesting. Um, now, like, measurement practices aside and those sort of things, right, there seems to be a pretty big cultural difference that's going on here. Yeah, totally. It definitely seems that that would imply that if any of these hypotheses are to be believed, there's something about the the child-rearing and behavior management strategies in those cultures that would make them stand apart from one another and the prevalence of those particular types of behavior patterns. Exactly. So they're, they're a little um, blunt here, and they say, can such dramatic differences in behavior between advanced industrialized nations be accounted by for differences in diet, toxins, allergens, television, or psychiatric disorders? It seems extremely unlikely. Are you quoting them directly there? Yep. Nice. And uh, they say, they wrote it from the first person, so they say, I have found no... Uh, scientific evidence support these theories. Now, I like to come at it from a little bit more of an angle of, yeah, there probably is multiple things that are going on here. We need to kind of keep open to that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's a little blunt. But they end by saying that they suggest that the fundamental reason behind so many more American children running amok is uh, child-rearing practices. Okay. And it sure seems like there's a component there. Um, And I will say that these authors have a lot of, at least Paul Chance specifically, I know his work, has a lot of background in synthesizing these sort of this sort of research. Okay. Very interesting. So with that, I think that that is very illuminating at that really helps draw in more of the sort of research and the scientific angle and, and how people are approaching this that are out in the field doing work with these sort of circumstances. And so let's go ahead and just jump into um, the way that this sort of works and what could be going on. So again, so this is getting us back to those principles that we talked about, right? Absolutely. Cool. So what I would like to actually do now is let's actually come up with some reasons why the kid, why some kid might be being a nightmare in a restaurant. And again, for this particular parent who came up, I don't know, but I could just go on all day. We're not going to go on all day, but we're going to list a few reasons why it could be the case that this kid is, um, is being a nightmare. So do you want to start? Or do you want me to start? You go for it. Okay. So the first one that I was thinking of, okay, let's say that you take a kid, want to put them around age five or six or so. They're going to a restaurant and um, the food is taking a really long time to get out. Um, maybe this is a kid who doesn't have a very firm, at least when I, the six-year-olds that I know have a very weak concept of time um, and able to sort of understand the passage of time and things that will happen in the future. Keeping yourself busy. Yeah, exactly. And so all they really know in that situation, this five or six-year-old kid who's in a restaurant is they know, A, I'm hungry. B, when I have acted out in the past, that has helped get me food or like when I've cried or fussed and that sort of thing. And so like I'm hungry now. This has gotten me food. I'm smelling food. I'm experiencing food around me. 
but I'm not getting food. And, um, for whatever reason, whatever I'm doing right now, people are angry with me. So like, I'm just, this is just a bad day. Yeah. Like, whatever's happening. All I know right now is things suck and I want my food. Abort, and abort. Get yeah. Get me out of here. Exactly. Uh, get me food. So that could be one, uh, one reason that a kid would be acting out. Yeah. I mean, that's an example of a motivation for escaping the restaurant and getting out of there, right? Uh, it could be. Yeah. yeah. There could be a lot of different reasons. Let's say this is a kid who like, isn't just they're used to getting a lot of attention from the parents. They go to this restaurant and all of a sudden the parents are not talking to them. They're not looking at them. They're looking at the menu. They're talking to each other. They're talking to this weird other person who's standing next to our table scribbling maybe, on a piece of paper. Maybe there's a weird sound. Maybe sure. the crayons are all dull and they can't draw on their paper. One of their favorite things to do while they're waiting for their food. Yeah. Uh, they could be irritated by their siblings. Maybe their friends are there. Maybe they didn't get very much sleep and they're just, you know, sort of on edge because they're very tired. And there's Maybe they got way too much sleep and they're super groggy. Yeah. Right? Maybe they're on a type of medication that just causes them to be really super active um, and uh, maybe they're having a difficult time focusing on things. Uh, there could be something uh, like their stomach hurts, right? Totally. Or they're not feeling well and they're not really hungry. Yeah, they could be in some sort of pain. Um, maybe it's the fact that this kid hasn't been to very many restaurants and this is just a totally new world to them. And it's just, you know, explore, like figure out what's going on, test the boundaries. Like like at the rainforest cafe. Yeah. Stuff going on everywhere. Right. Well, and then if you imagine that a lot of the, um, behaviors that are expected at a restaurant, those are grounded inside of cultural practice that if this kid's never been to a restaurant before, they've been to maybe like fast food restaurants where there aren't really that same, those same type of rules and they're now at a fancy restaurant that they don't, they don't know. Like they don't have any, any basis of comparison or any rules to adhere to that, uh, of what to do when you're in that particular situation. Right. So that's a lot of possibilities. Yeah. Those could be things that are going, there could be a hundred more. Yes. Or a million. I thousand. Don't know. I was going to say a thousand. Okay. A thousand. I mean a million. Yeah. Okay. Theoretically. We'll just keep going up the biggest <laughs> number we can think of. Okay. So all of that was probably not very helpful. So if you're a parent, you're listening to this and you're like, shut up, tell me what to do about it. I don't, I don't like, this is actually, I think very practical. The person who asked me was not necessarily as interested in why this is happening in as much as she was interested in, I needed to change. Just tell me how to fix it. Yeah. Which honestly, we get that a lot. Uh, People who come to us with some problem that they're having behaviorally with their kids or their spouse or themselves or something. And they're just like, "I, I just fix it. Like, don't make me do anything. Don't make me like do, I just want, just fix it. You know, I'll pay you money and you just fix it. Um, and so, uh, we're going to help you fix it. Yeah. (laughs) I would say, yeah, I would say that, that it's always an individual approach. Like yes, by nature, like that's that's how you got to note. That's how you got to approach these sort of things. So that's partially why, uh, you can't even answer that question right out of the gate. Yeah. And Um, actually I guess even before we launch into some of these strategies, it's worth noting that like, don't, don't refer refer to us as professionals who are diagnosing your problem and then telling you things to do. If you're concerned about this, definitely go seek a professional help. This is just, these are some strategies that I have found in the research that have shown that yeah. they have uh, yeah. recommended. We can, yeah. We can point someone to actual relevant. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So one thing you can do, and this is actually one of the easiest things you can do is make sure that you set expectations before you go into the restaurant and that those expectations are very clear. And what I mean by that is it's very tempting to just say, don't do this. Well, and this is actually, we've seen this in schools is if you say, you tell a kid, don't run in the hallway. And then what they do is they skip. And then you say, or they, you know, say, don't skip. And then they crawl and it's just whatever they do, they're, they're doing not the thing that you told them. So don't do something doesn't tell them what to do. Exactly. So it's not clear on what they should be doing. Right. So the expectations should be very clear of sit at the table and that sort of thing. Now, um, we'll get to some things that might arise out of problems for that as well. But, um, 
another strategy is that especially if you have younger kids and they have a problem with waiting for things in general is if you can order some like quick appetizer, something that can get them eating if they're hungry um, and get them interacting with food and all that sort of thing is you get something to the table quickly that they can start working on. Awesome. Anything that kind of keeps them engaged sounds like it could be a good idea, right? Yeah. And now a lot of people are hesitant to use things like um, iPads and technology. And that's fine. Like I totally understand you don't want to use those sort of things. But maybe talk to the kid. Maybe have some games that you play with them. Um, I actually really think it's really cool when they have those like placemats that they can draw on for kids. And they like have mazes and stuff. I I still love those. Yeah. At 28 years old. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I like the the one restaurant um, that I go to sometimes where they're the table is just paper and then they give you crayons and i'll just draw, I like to draw things yeah um, sitting okay. at the table they also have uh i've been to some restaurants where they have like the not like the actual fidget toys but you know what i mean like the mind game ones where you yeah. kind of like problem the puzzles mm-hmm. puzzle ones they yeah i like to those. solve something totally yeah i've always enjoyed those and there's another restaurant i really like here in town where they put um like little toy dinosaurs on the table and like yes. other toy figures and stuff and uh that's something adults play with them but kids can totally get into that and so you know you can use technology i'm not gonna say one way or another whether or not you should that's you know you can make that choice for yourself and for your family um, but if you have some kind of strategy to keep them engaged uh, then that can be helpful and a lot of parents have this approach of they should just sit there and wait patiently. Like that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. That also goes in hand in hand with like uh, a lot of research and the numbers vary, but it's always drastically outweighing one side or the other um, is that most of the time all the appropriate stuff is ignored and it's only the appropriate that is actually attended towards. Right. Yeah. And so, and the other thing I like to do when I hear that sort of thing is they should just do this is I like to remind them, okay, well, that's something they're learning and they'll get there. And right now they're kids. And if I ask you to just do something that's unpleasant, that causes you to wait a long time, if you sit at a stoplight and you can, and you watch a cycle go through and you don't get to go and you're like waiting your turn, if you actually take out a timer and measure it, you might wait there 30, 45 seconds, maybe even a minute at most. It's really not as long as it seems, but it seems like it takes forever when you're sitting at a light. And to be fair, there are some lights that take too long and don't turn when they're supposed to. Yeah. I was going to say, I would agree with you. Um, but I, I have heard it's like up to one or two years of a person's lifetime on average that they could wait at a red light. I could actually see that being true. Yeah. But it's scary. It is. Um, but just to say that when people who are adults are forced to be in these circumstances like these kids are where it's unpleasant, they're bored and they have to wait and there's something else they'd rather be doing and they might be hungry and like on their like lunch break or something. Mm-hmm. They also can start to have some little temper tantrums and meltdowns. So um, and there was actually one really fun sort of experiment, not really experiment, but it was more of an exercise where I wasn't actually a part of this, but, uh, what the instructors did, these are psychologists is they were training these teachers, uh, working with kids and the teachers are like, these kids just need to stand in line quietly and wait and, you know, not be fidgeting with each other and not harassing yeah. each other. And so they're like, okay, you guys stand in a line and don't touch each other and don't make any noises. And they could not go two seconds, not two seconds without these like, you know, 15 adults who are professional teachers. Yeah. One of them making a noise or bugging each other or doing something um, the whole time. And so just to sort of show them, we set these expectations for kids that we do not hold ourselves to. (laughs) And so um, it's just important to maybe be aware of the fact that, again, these are kids. Yeah. And be realistic about some what to expect sometimes, you know, make those expectations clear, but be realistic about it. Otherwise, you're setting both you up for failure and the poor kid. Yes. Another one that I love personally doing 
is having some kind of strategy for rewarding that appropriate behavior. And this goes back to what you were saying about the good behavior goes unnoticed. Yep. And, um, you know, I actually, I have an older brother and he was telling me about when, uh, they tried to manage their kids behavior when they were somewhere and they had like these five tokens or five strikes. I don't know what the system was exactly, but they could lose those five strikes. And once they lost all five, then whatever big thing they were going to get at the end, it was just taken away. And I was like, okay, I could see that working, but try just flipping that around because Mm -hmm. you know, once they've taken away the thing that they want, you've got nowhere else to go from there. Yeah, you're at the end of the road. Yeah, but you can always keep providing stuff. Like, that's relatively easy to do to a point. Yeah. And a lot of people, again, they come to this, well, they should just do it anyway. And I counter with, well, they're not. And so if you want them to, you got to kickstart it somehow. Yeah. Do you work without getting your money? Yeah, exactly. And so this is sort of a, a really quick and easy strategy of just have some kind of system in place where... You tell them ahead of time, this is exactly what I expect you to do. Basically, stay in your chair. Mm-hmm. Food must remain on your plate, so it's not being thrown, that sort of thing, um, or whatever the rules are. And then if you do those things, then this is what you'll earn. And you can have, while they're there, again, might have that system of their earning tallies or tokens or even just praise. Statements can work sometimes for kids, depending on their age and various things. Sometimes they need something more tangible. Yeah. Um, but those, those simple rewards can be really profound in helping to just yeah, it sucks that we have to have a system in place, but it works and eventually you can fade it out. Exactly. And honestly, it can be really fun for parents too. What happens when someone violates an expectation? Um, well, then they should also state with those expectations, what those rewards are and the consequences for violating those expectations. And it shouldn't be, we're not at all endorsing like corporal punishment or yeah, no. any anything like that. No. Um, you might have some kind of punitive measures in place for, you know, this is what you do to earn your time on the iPad or you're going to this place to get dessert afterward, whatever. Um, and then if we don't earn that, then we miss that opportunity. And then that could be clearly stated, you know, if that's something you want to do, that's fine that, you know, just make sure that those expectations are clearly stated. And then you have that consequence there. And one thing important about this is sometimes things arise where it's not the behavior that you expected, but it's not necessarily inappropriate either. And so just recommend, you know, be flexible with your rules and just know where to, where to bend and then where to be um, really strict. Exactly. And I think that's always a learning process. So I oftentimes mention people ask like in the moment, like, what do I do? And it's just like, hold something consistent and yeah. then rehash it later. Yeah. For the time being, be consistent. Man, I actually wasn't entirely intending to go that direction with this, but... That's where we went. That's where we went. That's where we ended up. Okay. Hopefully that was okay. Hopefully you got something out of this and enjoyed it. And if you have any, you know, strategies that you've used in restaurants, we'd love to hear those from you. Would be drop them in the comments. Yeah, we'll share them on the podcast and let other people know what you've uh, used to uh, help to deal with nightmarish kids at restaurants. So if we had a short take home, what would it be, Abraham? Oh yeah, good question. Um, so I guess the the short answer to why are my kids nightmare at restaurants? Uh, well. There could be and likely are many reasons. I think it's a great place to end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us on all, any of the platforms. And uh, thanks for listening. Ryan O. And Abraham. Out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. 
Find us at www.podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brussier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.